Turn in your Bibles tonight, if you would, to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verse 12 through verse 26 tonight. Have you ever heard a report about a restaurant that someone else was raving about? And so you decided that you needed to go and eat there. And you went and you ordered some food, and when the food came... It was subpar. The flavor just wasn't great. It was overcooked. Everything was mushy. You thought, well, that was a disappointment. So then you went home and you thought about it, but that other person was so enthusiastic about what they'd had, you wondered, maybe it was just an off day for the kitchen staff. Maybe it wasn't so bad after all. Maybe Next time it would be better. So you decided, I'm going to go back and I'll try it again. Only the second time you try it, it's even worse. And you decide, never mind. I won't eat at that restaurant after all. Have you ever experienced that? The way you're laughing, some of you have. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26 is kind of like that. The wise man, the preacher takes a second try at some of the things that have left him disappointed. He records in verse 12, And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, But the fool walketh in darkness, and I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever." seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity." There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. 
This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. As we study tonight, you might count how many times he makes the statement that this is vanity. You'll notice in verse 12 that the preacher makes this statement. He says, I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. The statement that he used means that he went back and looked at it again. He's already expressed his disappointment with these different areas that he had sampled, in which he had given his heart to partake of the things that the world had to offer. But when he says he turned himself, it literally means he returned. He went back to it thinking, well, maybe I missed something the first time. Perhaps there was something that was there that I didn't notice, and it'll be better the second time around. And yet, as you can see, as we read the text, he came back with the same conclusion. It still is vanity. It still is a grief. It still is a vexation of spirit. Now, you'll notice that he also makes the statement there in verse number 12. He asked the question, what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath been already done. And what he's expressing, what he's stating by asking this question is that there's not a chance that somebody coming after him is going to come to a different conclusion because he has had such a thorough experience in all of these different areas that he is quite sure his sentence is true. There's not a chance that someone is going to come and have a different experience than he did because he has already done it all and been left disappointed. Now, as he comes and tries all of this out a second time, the preacher comes to a sad and painful conclusion. And he also shares a bit of wisdom with us at the end of this chapter that helps us to begin thinking about that which is really important. Notice with me, first of all, his startling observation. As he goes back and he looks again at wisdom and madness and folly, and you remember how we spoke about that idea of madness and folly and wisdom, and he went to learning to the classroom. He went to uh, sample the, the, the things that the world had to offer, the pleasures, and he found great disappointment in all of these places. But he came to a, an observation in verse 13, which is a true observation. He says, I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. He's not necessarily talking about the wisdom of God. He's really speaking about the wisdom of man. But he's pointing out that if you have a choice between being wise and being foolish, you're better off being wise. It'd be better for you to choose wisdom than it would be to choose folly. And this is because as he goes on to state that wisdom is better than folly in the same way as light is better than darkness. It's better to walk in the light 
and know where you're walking than it is to stumble around in the darkness. That seems fairly obvious. Uh, It's better to live with wisdom, with some discernment and discretion and understanding about your life than it is to just stumble around all the time trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong. He's making this analogy so that we could understand that it's really silly to live in foolishness when wisdom is available to you. Even if that wisdom is only worldly wisdom, it's better than no wisdom at all. But then he goes on from that conclusion, and now he really comes to the thing that he's observing in verse number 15, excuse me, verse number 14, he says, I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. What is his observation? It is this, no matter whether you are wise or foolish, rich or poor, famous or infamous or unknown, there is one event that is on the calendar for every single one of us. And that event is the great equalizer. It is death. Solomon comes to grips with his own mortality And he realizes that despite all the things that he has enjoyed, despite all of the things that he has accomplished, despite all of the things that he has learned, death is coming. Now, this is a truth that we attempt to deny oftentimes, especially when we're young. Now, sure, we may acknowledge that death is coming, but it's far off. It's many years away, at least in our minds. It seems that death is off in the future, and I don't need to think about that or worry about that right now. In fact, young people are prone to take risks doing things that are very foolish because they think that death is far away, that it couldn't possibly affect them, ignoring all the while that young people die all the time. Death is not reserved only for old people. Death, however, is an event that happens to us all. Look at the world around you right now. Many people are living as if death is a fantasy, as if they'll be here forever. In fact, we're in this very strange season of the year in which we are celebrating death to put the thoughts of it off from us as if it is a joke. So everywhere we drive... Is it just me, or are the displays becoming more garish and ghoulish all the time? I'm driving around, going to the store, and I see these things in people's front yards, and I think, I don't... If you you got up in the morning and went to work in the dark, I wouldn't want to see that out by my car. I don't understand what the appeal of this is, but then I do understand what the appeal is. Because if you can joke about death, If you can make it something to make light of, then it becomes something that is not serious. It becomes something that that does not have to be considered or weighed or prepared for. It's just something to, to, to make light of, something to be a joke. But after all, we understand that death is a reality. Many people are rushing on in their foolish way, ignoring the fact that this one event is already on their life calendar And it will be here before they know it. Instead of living in light of eternity, they're living for the here and now. 
as if somehow pushing the thought of death from their mind will make it go away or put it off longer than it will actually be. But no matter how wise or foolish you are, death is coming. I can say this with 100% certainty tonight, you are going to die. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 warns us, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. True wisdom does not deny death or try to get around it. But I want you to notice in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon is making the point that even wise men die. You say, well, I love the Lord and I'm serving Him. Surely He'll keep me alive. Well, I'm sure He'll preserve your life for as long as He wants you to be here. Yet you also have an appointment with death. I have an appointment with death. Death is coming. Again, this is a thought that we are often uncomfortable with. We, we don't like to talk about it. We try to avoid uh, facing seriously the fact that death is on the way but death is coming. And he goes on to say in verse number 15, Then said I in my heart, As it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Not only is the reality of death there for every person, but also the manner of death is the same for all men. I don't mean that all of us are going to die the exact same way. Some folks are going to go by different ways than other folks. I believe what he's pointing out here, though, is that death is an equalizing event. You see, the truth is that in death, your weakness is highlighted. There's no one that is smart enough, strong enough, or successful enough to avoid death, or to die in some different way than someone else does. In fact, the reality is we don't pick our death or our manner of death. And I do understand that some people attempt to do that through different means, but the truth is that death is not something that you have control over. The preacher's conclusion when he's considering this truth about death, did you see it there in verse 15? It was a response of despair and emptiness. When he thought about his life, and then he thought about what was coming, he said, it's vanity. It's emptiness. There's, there's no value in my life. Why was I wise if I'm just going to die? If this is all there is... Is this enough? Now, ask yourself the question, what is the worth of life if it's going to end? You know, many people around you in society are grappling with this question. This is why sometimes uh, middle-aged men go through what is sometimes termed a midlife crisis. Because they realize their life is coming to an end and it's probably coming sooner than they thought. And all of a sudden they realize there's things I want to do. There's places I want to go. There's things that I want to buy. I need to hurry up and do the things that I can do before my life is over. And yet, 
those same men, when death comes, will often be incredibly unhappy because after all they have experienced, it's not quite enough. The preacher comes to this conclusion in verse 16, For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? What he recognizes in verse 16 is a truth. The truth is this. You and I will likely be forgotten. It's not flattering to any of us. For all of our trying to be remembered, the simple truth is that within a couple of generations, no one will remember us. Perhaps they will remember our name. Maybe they will remember some contribution that we've made. But it's unlikely. Out of all the billions of people who've lived and died before you and I, there's a relatively small handful that we remember. Perhaps you've thought of this, all the people who've lived before you. We don't know their names or their contributions or anything about them. They lived, they dreamed, they did all the same sorts of things that we did, they felt the same way that we did, they experienced life and then they died and they're gone and they're forgotten. This was the conclusion that the preacher came to, and I'm not trying to make you depressed tonight, but under the sun, this is the kind of hope that you have. This is the kind of ambition that you could have to hopefully make a difference, but after all, how many people are actually remembered? Not too many. And the wise man comes to this conclusion that all of our attempts to be significant to future generations are likely being pursued in vain. He said, whether I'm a wise man or a fool, doesn't matter. Nobody's going to remember. Nobody's going to know the difference. It's a startling observation. When you come face to face with your mortality and you recognize the fact that you are here for a little while, and then you will be gone. It ought to sober you. I'm especially speaking to some of our young people. It ought to sober you to realize that life is short. This is a truth that's borne out in the rest of Scripture. We're told, for instance, in the book of James, that our life is like a vapor. It appeareth for a little while, and then it's gone. We're reminded that if... If we're fortunate or, or that God says it's normal for someone to live three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength we live four score years, then are our years, then is our life labor and sorrow. And the closer you get to that three score and ten, the more real it becomes that you have an appointment with death. At least it ought to. Be reminded that there is an observation about life, and that is that life comes to an end. Then he goes on, beginning in verse number 17, and he comes to a very sad conclusion about all that he has experienced up to this time. In light of the fact that death is coming, he says this in verse 17, Therefore I hated life. He loathed life. He despaired of life. 
The only place that he could land was that life is unbearably hard. That's what the word grievous means, and it has no value. Isn't that sad? After all he had experienced and all he had learned and all he had seen and, 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 and all of these things that were a part of his life, all he could say was, I hated life. How does someone get to the place where they hate life? Do you know we're told right now that attempts at suicide are at an all-time high in our country? How, how is it that people who have so much get to the place where they despair of life, where they hate their life? Solomon was at the place where he looked at his life and he loathed his existence. Why? Verse 17. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. He looked at everything that he had accomplished, everything that he had done, everything that he had invested his life into, all those earthly works, all of his construction projects, the gardens, the streams of water, the vineyards, the summation of his life's work was miserably empty. And it left him with a sense of loss rather than a sense of gain. Now, he's going to expand upon this in the following verses. In verse 18, he makes this statement, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun. Why? Because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Do you know what he was despairing about? The thing that left him with the greatest pain was when he realized that everything he had invested his life into was going to be left to someone else. Someone else was going to take it over. Someone else was going to live in his house. Someone else was going to harvest the fruit from his vineyard. Someone else was going to be the partaker of all of the labors that he had invested his life in. And he knew this. He, at least he sensed it in his spirit that this next man who was coming after him would probably not appreciate it and would likely not use it properly. He insinuates that this next man would probably be a fool and would waste all of the resources that were handed to him so generously. Solomon was struggling with the fact that he had invested his life in something that he thought was really going to last, but he realized he's going to hand it to the next guy, and the next guy is probably going to mess it up. If you know much about the history of Rehoboam, or, or Solomon and his son Rehoboam, then you know that something like this did happen. Solomon handed a thriving, wealthy kingdom that was prosperous and united to his son. And within a short period of time, his son split the kingdom and lost almost everything because he was a fool. Solomon saw that this might happen and he despaired. Now what the preacher here was really struggling with was something that we struggle with. It's the loss of control. You see, while he was in control of all of his works, the things that he had done, he felt that he could make those works worthwhile. But he was convinced that the man coming after him would be a lesser man and would not properly care for these things. And 
Therefore, all of his investment would be lost. This would happen because he would not be personally present to oversee it after his death. In other words, Solomon is focused very selfishly and saying, nobody else can do it like I can do it. If I'm not here to control it, then it's all going to be lost. I want to point out that Solomon's not doing such a hot job at this himself at this moment. He's he's casting about trying to find the purpose of life, and he's already at this point to some degree walked away from the wisdom of God which was given to him, and he's sampling the wares of the world. He's got some things to reckon with himself, but he's very concerned that the person after him is probably going to mess it up. Verse 20, look at what it says. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. When I read that verse, I thought of Solomon walking around all the things that he had been responsible for building. The the construction projects, the houses and and the vineyards and the gardens and the, 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 the streams of water and all of these things. And just walking around and looking at it and crying and thinking, I can't take it with me. And somebody else is going to ruin it after I'm gone. And he despaired. He despaired because all of those things represented the investment of his life. And he realized that it had no value. No eternal value. He talks about this being something that caused him to despair... He goes on to say, There is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. What does he mean? He means, look, I I invested my life into these things. I I poured my heart and soul into them. I, I put my labor into them. My wisdom is invested in there. My knowledge, the, the, the things that are important to me, the, the, the things that are, that are my values are invested in these things. And someone is going to come along after me and they're not going to have labored for it the same way that I did. They're not going to value it the same way that I did. Think about what happens. Someone buys a house and they move in. They're getting ready to move into that house. And before you move in, you should probably do some remodeling, right? So you go through the house and you you do a tally. The orange carpet in the living room. It's got to go. The wallpaper in the bathroom with that strange flower print. It's got to go. That weird green bathtub. It's got to go. They make a list. Those kitchen cabinets, you know, white is trendy. Oak is so out. It's got to go. Formica countertops? Goodness, who buys those anymore? We need granite. We've got to have something really nice. Are you following me? But all those things that were in the house that are getting rid of, someone picked those out. Someone in that moment thought, this is exactly how this house ought to be. And and this is exactly what is going to please me. I'm going to make the house exactly. I know it's hard for us to imagine. Why would anybody pick orange carpet? But at one time, that was pleasing. That was what made people happy. But notice this. You come in and you say all this stuff... 
get rid of it. I'm putting something else in, and it's going to be so much better. Forgetting that one day somebody's going to come in after you and say, all this, look at this nasty stuff. Who has this sense of style? Get rid of this. I'm putting something else in. You see? Now Solomon says, I labored in all of this, but the guy who's coming after me, he didn't labor in it. He didn't invest in it. It's not going to have the same importance to him. I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this. And he's just going to have it handed to him. And Solomon realized that this is a serious problem. In fact, it was more than a grief to him. It was a great evil to him. What he's saying is, it's not fair. It's not fair that you could invest your life in something and then you leave and you don't take it with you. Someone else takes it over and they're not going to treat it the same way. He felt that he had labored in wisdom, knowledge, and equity, but another man would inherit it and not value it the same way that he did. As he thought further about the investment of his years, the fabric of his life, the decisions that made up the months, the weeks, the days, and the moments of his very life, he felt such despair. All he could see was sorrow, grief, and unrest. In fact, as he looked back on it, he said, verse 23, all his days are sorrows and his travail grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. He thought back on all the things that he had done. And what did he remember? He remembered the sleepless nights. The nights laying awake, trying to figure out how to keep it all. How to preserve it. And the sinking realization that it was absolutely impossible. Despite all of his worry and all of his planning and all of his preparation, there was absolutely no way for him to keep all of these things for himself. Now, I do want to point out to you that oftentimes people who have built and accumulated and accomplished end up losing sleep, trying to figure out how to keep all the things that they've accumulated all the things that they've accomplished. They're always worried about someone one-upping them, someone surpassing them, someone uh, stealing from them and losing everything. And this is the conclusion that Solomon comes to in his life. He says, I'm going to die. And when I die, none of this is going to matter. Now, in verses 24 through 26, there's a little nugget of truth for us. In the midst of all this grief and sorrow and discouragement, which is characteristic of under-the-sun kind of wisdom, he gives us this little nugget of truth. He says, There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. It's the first time that the preacher makes reference to God. It's the first time that he calls attention to the fact that it's not just him who's involved in the affairs of his life, but it is God who is at work. 
For a moment, he recognizes that everything that he enjoys or everything that he possesses is a gift from God. What is it that is from God? And I ask you, what does that have to do with us? Well, notice he specifically mentions a couple of things that are from God. First of all, he mentions that God has given us the ability and the opportunity to enjoy his daily blessings. God is a good God. I mentioned this to you last week when we were dealing with the earlier part of chapter 2. God is a good God. He is a Father who gives good gifts. And even people who are wicked and ungodly and far from the Lord benefit to some degree from the good gifts that God gives. Even if they don't recognize who God is or, or recognize the fact that God is the giver of those gifts, still they partake of those gifts. And often they do that selfishly and brazenly, uh, accusing God, and yet at the same time God still gives them those gifts. Now Solomon recognizes that God is a good God. He gives many daily blessings. And these blessings that he points out in verse 24 may be very simple. The things that he mentions is that he should eat and drink. It's a small thing, at least it is to us. But do you ever think about what a blessing it is to eat and drink? I mean, I know, we, we all pray before every meal, or at least I hope you do, and we say, Lord, thank you for the food that you've provided, but do you mean it? Do you know that how blessed you are? to have food on your table, to, to have clean water to drink or to make coffee with? Do you know how blessed you are to experience these simple things? If you didn't have them, you'd be a lot more thankful for them when they came. And the truth is that because we have so much, we often are not appreciative of the blessings of God, but it's God who gives us the things that we can eat and drink these simple blessings. This is from God. He's given us this ability to enjoy His daily blessings. The second thing that He points out, which God has provided, is that God has given us the ability to enjoy the good that comes from our labor. He mentions that specifically in verse 24, and that He should make His soul enjoy good in his labor. Now notice, he's referencing the soul. And certainly there's good that comes to the body from labor or from work, but there is a goodness to our soul that comes from work. When you invest your life in work, when you, when you pour yourself into something, yes, it's temporary. No, it's not going to last. Listen, you go out and mow the grass, chances are you're going to have to mow the grass again in seven days. But still there is something that comes from when you mow the grass and it looks good and you say, look, my lawn looks so nice. Even if it's just for a short time, it does your soul good. It's good to work. Do you know that God designed us to work and God designed us to take enjoyment in our work? This is a blessing of God. God didn't make us to be sluggards, to lay around and do nothing, to be lazy and turn like a door on its hinges on our bed, as the book of Proverbs speaks about. God made us to work and to labor, and he designed us in such a way that in that labor there is satisfaction, 
There's something that nourishes our soul when we work. That is God's design. He gave us dignity and enjoyment in the work that we do. Now, these are the blessings of God. And he reminds us again in verse 25, who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? In other words, who who has experienced more than I have? If anybody could be an authority on this, it's me. Take my word for it. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up. All right, so now notice the nugget of truth in verse 26. Because now Solomon makes reference to the justice of God. You see, in here, in life under the sun, he points out that when God sees a man that is good in his sight, he blesses that man. He gives that man wisdom and knowledge and joy. And and tonight... I want to remind you that the only way that we could be good in God's sight is to be seen in Christ. So here there's a hint of the gospel, a reminder of the fact that we desperately need Christ. And of course, the giving of Christ is the greatest blessing that any of us could receive. But there's also a reference in this verse to the sinner. And to the sinner, God gives travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. You see, the sinner may gather, he may heap up, he may accumulate the goods of this world, he may accomplish something, but guess what? All of his accumulating is without value because he can't take it with him. He's going to leave it behind for someone else. But the man that is good, the man that is righteous, is living in a way that is different. He's not just concerned with the things he's accumulating here under the sun. And God is blessing his life. The justice of God is an important thing to consider in light of what we see under the sun. In fact, I would go so far as to say that without an eternal perspective, we are miserably cursed to live in this world. All the things that people hope to receive and accomplish in this world mean absolutely nothing without an eternal perspective. Now, just a quick application. From this section of chapter 2 and this second look of the preacher, we learn two things. First of all, it's best for you and I to enjoy the blessings of God that He gives to us now. I know that God has been good to you. I know that God has blessed your life. I'm not saying that everything is perfect or that you have no troubles or difficulties. I suspect that you probably have plenty of those things too. But in the midst of that, don't you have some blessings? Don't you have some things that you can enjoy? And the truth is, you and I can spend so much time worrying about how to protect and prolong our blessings that we miss the opportunity to enjoy them. We get so caught up trying to prepare for the future that we forget to live in the present. You're you're so busy doing this and that and preparing for retirement that you don't realize it and your kids are gone. They're no longer in the house. And you miss the opportunity to spend with them because you were so busy preparing for something off in the future. 
I'm saying to you, take advantage of the blessings that God gives to you right now. Don't worry so much about your legacy that you forget to live. Enjoy the blessings of God that he gives. Take joy in the simple blessing God wants you to enjoy. You could be so worried about something that you're one day going to get that you forget the things that you have right now. What are some of these things? Simple things. Sitting around the dinner table with your family and listening to the conversation and enjoying the food which God has provided. It sounds little, but it's big. Rejoice in it. This time of year, taking a walk with the fall leaves under your feet and marveling at the beautiful creation that God has made doesn't cost you a thing. It's there for the taking and the enjoyment. And God wants us to pause and enjoy the blessings that he's given to us. Or a quiet moment with an open Bible and real communication from the living God. What a blessing that is to think that God would speak to you through his word and guide your path. Take joy in these blessings. But then, we know these temporal things are not forever. So the second thing that we must recognize and cling to is that you and I need to live in the light of God's righteous judgment. It's true, this life is short. It doesn't last very long. There's precious few pleasures to enjoy in this world of sorrow. There's so much pain and difficulty and burdens. But remember that though this life is short, there's more to come. There's an eternity that awaits, and eternity ought not to be disregarded. In fact, if you have the right view of eternity... All the burdens and the griefs and the difficulties of this life become manageable. But if you have the wrong view of eternity, all the joys and achievements and accomplishments of this life become meaningless. This is because God made us not just for this world, but he made us for eternity. And we see hints of this in Ecclesiastes 2 as the preacher is coming to grips with this and beginning to understand or remember at least that he's not made just for this world. And so tonight, I hope that you'll meditate on these things and I hope that you'll take a look at your life. Ask yourself how you're living. Ask yourself if you're being realistic about death the appointment that's already on the calendar. Ask yourself if you're investing your life in the way that God wants you to invest and enjoying the blessings that God is giving to you on a daily basis. Ultimately, he's a good God who ought to be praised, who ought to be worshipped, and we ought to be preparing to spend our eternity with him.